Good morning. I, I think we can get started now. Um, I'm Jim Dorn, Vice President for Monetary Studies uh, at the Cato Institute and also editor of the Cato Journal. The conference papers always appear in the Cato Journal in the spring-summer issue, so the papers that are delivered today will be in the journal this, this spring. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you join us today uh, for this conference. Uh, I'd like to thank all our speakers and the moderators as well as Cato's amazing staff uh, for making this conference possible. And special thanks go to the George Edward Durrell Foundation uh, for its continuing support of Cato's annual monetary conference. So thanks, Dave Durrell, if you're here. I haven't seen you yet. But, uh, this year's conference comes at a critical juncture in the Federal Reserve's more than 100-year history. The 2008-2009 financial crisis ushered in unconventional monetary policy and a new operating system in which the Fed administratively sets a target range for its policy rate using interest on excess reserves and overnight reverse repos. The stands of monetary policy is now separated from the Fed's balance sheet. That's a big change from the pre-crisis framework for monetary policy. So the Fed is in effect in uncharted waters and is now reviewing its strategies, tools, and communication practices and will release a major report about mid next year. And part of this year's review process has been the, quote, Fed Listens program with its town hall type meetings around the country. We hope the Fed will be listening today as our distinguished speakers provide a shadow review of the Fed's operations and policies. Vice Chairman Richard Clarida has been instrumental in the Fed's ongoing review. And it's an honor to have him with us today to open the conference. I believe we share a common interest, namely to improve the monetary framework so that the American people can participate in a robust market economy without the distorting effects of what Clark Warburton called erratic money. That said, the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives uh, stated objective is to work with policymakers, academics, the press, the private sector, and the public to explore reforms that capture the power of markets to improve people's well-being. Finally, I was glad to read in the Wall Street Journal in an op-ed written by Paul Volcker, Alan Greenspan, Ben Bernanke, and Janet Yellen that, quote, the Fed welcomes open dialogue. Events by the Fed Listens program in which Fed leaders have engaged with the public about possible changes to the Fed's policy framework. Close quote. Uh, but in particular, I like what they said in their conclusion. They said, quote, a robust public debate helps make monetary policy better. And that's what we've tried to do uh, for 37 years now uh, with this conference, to get people together from various sectors of the economy and with different viewpoints, but highly qualified people, to debate the key issues in monetary policy and try to in improve the framework. And the conference has a long life because we publish the proceedings of the conference every year in the Cato Journal. Uh, copies of which are, are outside. Now, it's in the spirit of 
a robust public debate that I welcome today's discussion. So let's get started. And uh, the vice chairman uh, was in Switzerland on Tuesday for a conference, and then he flew right back. So I appreciate uh, the fact that he accepted our invitation to speak at this conference. Richard Clarida has had a stellar career as an economist. He taught at Yale and Columbia, served on President Reagan's Council of Economic Advisors, worked as Assistant Secretary with the U.S. Treasury, and consulted for the Group of 30, a project led by Paul Volcker. He was a member of the National Bureau of Economic Research and served as co-editor of the NBER Macroeconomics Journal. He also served as Global Strategic Advisor and Managing Director with PIMCO. So he's had a very varied and successful career. On September 17, 2018, he began a four-year term as vice chair of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, succeeding Stanley Fisher, who actually uh, spoke at our conference uh, some time ago. He was confirmed by the Senate in a, by a vote of 69 to 26. Prior to his appointment to the Board of Governors, the vice chairman served as a C. Lowell Harris Professor of Economics and International Affairs at Columbia University. Uh, Lowell, by the way, uh, attended some of our monetary conferences way back in the early 80s. Besides his many achievements as an economist, the vice chair has an evo evocation music. He played clarinet and saxophone, performing in both jazz and rock bands in high school. And at the University of Illinois, where he received his BA in economics, he spent a lot of time writing music, playing piano alone in Smith Music Hall, probably after he took an Econ 101 course, uh, listening and listening to jazz as I learned from uh, an interview in the uh, Liberal Arts and Sciences uh, magazine at University of Illinois. In 2016, he produced his first album, Time No Change. Uh, and when I was thinking about the title of the album, I wondered if he uh, got that title from Alan Greenspan. Uh, two of the songs recorded uh, in the album were recorded at Abbey Road Studio, where the Beatles, of course, uh, recorded a lot, a lot of their albums in London. Well, let's uh, welcome the vice chairman, uh, Rocker, uh, who will speak on the Federal Reserve's review of its monetary policy strategy, tools, and communication practices. And it is available on Spotify and iTunes. <laughs> I got my first royalty check a while back for $93. And uh, so yes, it is, it is for real. Um, well, I'm delighted, truly delighted, to be at the Cato Institute today to participate in the annual Monetary Policy Conference. Um, the last time I had the privilege of speaking at this conference was in 2004. And in preparing this talk, I took the liberty of rereading the conference volume uh, from that conference that was published in the winter of 2005. Uh, this was easy enough since I have that conference volume on my shelf at the Fed, and here it is, Cato Journal, winter 2005, International Monetary Reform and Capital Freedom. 
Uh, and it makes for interesting reading. Uh, the volume includes uh, selected remarks from Ben Bernanke on monetary policy in a world of capital mobility, Adam Larrick, Raghu Rajan, and Ken Rogoff on sovereign debt crises, Dave Malpass on exchange rate protectionism, George Selgan on currency privatization, although I don't think Lieber made it into that version, Kristen Forbes on capital controls, and my remarks that day were on the topic of China and the U.S. current account deficit. Now, I was tempted to go back and compare the way that the world looked to us in 2004 to the way that it looks to us today, but I will resist that urge and direct my remarks in accordance with the theme of this year's conference, Fed Policy a Shadow Review, which takes up the Federal Reserve's 2019 review of our strategy tools and communications practices. And at this point, I will go back on script. This topic, of course, is timely and one to which I and others have devoted much thought over the past year. Now, although I will have more to say about the review in a moment, let me state at the outset that we believe our existing framework, which has been in place since 2012, has served us well and has enabled us to achieve and sustain our statutorily assigned goals of maximum employment and price stability. However, we also believe now is a good time to step back and assess whether and in what ways we can refine our strategy tools and practices to achieve and maintain our goals as consistently and robustly as possible. With the U.S. economy operating at or close to maximum employment and price stability, now is an especially opportune time to conduct this review. The unemployment rate is near a 50-year low, and inflation is running close to our 2% objective. With this review, we hope to ensure that we are well-positioned to continue to meet our statutory goals in coming years. The U.S. and global economies have changed in some important ways since the global financial crisis. Perhaps most significantly, neutral interest rates appear to have fallen in the U.S. and abroad. A fall in neutral rates increases the likelihood that a central bank's policy rate will hit the effective lower bound in future downturns. That development, in turn, could make it more difficult during downturns for monetary policy to support spending and employment and to keep inflation from falling too far below the 2% objective. Another key development in recent decades is that price inflation appears less responsive to resource slack. That is, the short-run price Phillips curve, if not the wage Phillips curve, appears to have flattened, implying a change in the dynamic relationship between inflation and employment. A flatter Phillips curve permits the Fed to support employment more aggressively during downturns. However, a flatter Phillips curve also increases the cost of reversing any unwelcome increase in inflation expectations. Thus, a flatter Phillips curve makes it all the more important that inflation expectations remain anchored at levels consistent with our 2% inflation objective. And based upon the evidence that I have, I've reviewed, I judge that U.S. inflation expectations today do reside at the low end of a range I consider consistent with our price stability mandate. For some time now, price stability in the U.S. has coincided with historically low unemployment. <laughs> This low unemployment rate, currently 3.6%, has been interpreted by many as suggesting that the labor market is operating beyond full employment. 
However, we cannot directly observe the level of unemployment consistent with full employment and price stability, but we must infer it from data and via models. I myself believe that the range of plausible estimates of U star extends from 4% and below and includes the current unemployment rate of 3.6%. As the unemployment rate has declined in recent years, labor force participation, especially for prime age workers, has increased significantly, with the October participation rate at a cycle high of 82.8%. Increased prime age participation has provided employers with additional labor resources and has been one factor along with the pickup in productivity that's been restraining inflationary pressures. Whether or not participation will continue to increase in a tight labor market remains to be seen. But I note that the male prime age participation rate still remains below levels seen in previous business cycle expansions. Also, although the labor market is robust, there is no evidence that rising wages are putting excessive upward pressure on price inflation. Wages today are increasing broadly in line with productivity growth and underlying inflation. Also of note, and receiving less attention than it deserves, is the material increase in labor share of national income that has occurred in recent years as the labor market has tightened. As I have written before, labor share tends to rise as expansions endure and the labor market tightens. In recent cycles, and thus far in this business cycle, this rise in labor share has not put excessive upward pressure on price inflation. Let me now turn specifically to the review. The Federal Reserve Act instructs the Fed to conduct policy, quote, so as to promote effectively the goals of maximum employment, stable prices, and moderate long-term interest rates. Our review this year takes this mandate as given and also takes as given that inflation at a rate of 2% is most consistent over the longer run with our congressional mandate. Our existing monetary policy strategy is laid out in the committee's statement on longer run goals and monetary policy strategy. First adopted in 2012, the statement indicates that the committee seeks to mitigate deviations of inflation from 2% and deviations of employment from its assessment of its maximum level. In doing so, the committee recognizes that these assessments of maximum employment are necessarily uncertain and subject to revision. As a practical matter, our current strategy shares many elements with a policy framework known as flexible inflation targeting. However, the Fed's mandate is much more explicit about the role of employment than that of most other central banks, and our statement reflects this by stating that when the two sides of the mandate are in conflict, neither one takes precedence over the other. The review of our current framework is wide-ranging, and we are not prejudging where it will take us, but events of the past decade highlight three broad questions that we will seek to answer with our review. The first question is, can the Federal Reserve best meet its objectives with its existing monetary policy strategy, or should it consider strategies that aim to reverse past misses of its inflation objective? Under our current approach, as well as the approach of many other central banks, persistent inflation shortfalls of the target are treated as bygones. Central banks are generally believed to have effective tools for preventing per persistent inflation overshoots, but the effective lower bound on interest rates makes persistent undershoots more of a challenge. Persistent inflation shortfalls do carry the risk that longer-run inflation expectations become anchored below the stated inflation goal. 
In part because of that concern, some economists have advocated makeup strategies under which policymakers seek to undo past inflation deviations from target. These strategies include targeting average inflation and price level targeting, in which policymakers seek to stabilize the price level around a constant growth path. Other makeup strategies seek to reverse shortfalls in policy accommodation at the ELB by keeping the policy rate lower for longer than would otherwise be the case. In many models that incorporate the ELB, these, e these makeup strategies lead to better average performance on both legs of the mandate, at least in theory. However, the success of makeup strategies relies on households and firms believing in advance that the makeup will, in fact, be delivered when the time comes. For example, that a persistent inflation shortfall will be met by a future period of inflation above 2%. As is well known from the academic literature, makeup strategies in general are not time consistent because when the time comes to push inflation above 2%, conditions at that time will not justify that action. Thus, one of the most important questions that we seek to answer in our review is whether the Fed could in practice <clears throat> achieve the benefits of makeup strategies that are possible in theoretical models. The next question the re review is considering is are existing monetary policy tools adequate to achieve and maintain our dual mandate objectives or should the toolkit be expanded? The committee's primary monetary policy tool is the target range for the federal funds rate. <clears throat> In December of 2008, the committee cut that target to just above zero in response to the financial crisis. Because the U.S. economy required additional support after the ELB was reached, the committee deployed two additional tools in the years following the crisis, balance sheet policies and forward guidance about the likely path of the federal funds rate. In addition to assessing the efficacy of these existing tools, the review is examining additional tools for easing policy when the ELB is binding. During the crisis and its aftermath, the Federal Reserve considered some of the tools deployed by other central banks, but ultimately found them wanting in the U.S. context. But the review is reassessing the case for these and other tools in light of more recent experience in other countries. The third question the review is considering is how can the FOMC's communication of its policy framework and implementation be improved? Our communication practices have evolved considerably since 1994 when the Fed released the first statement after an FOMC meeting. Over the past decade or so, the committee has enhanced its communication both to promote public understanding of policy and strategy and goals. These enhancements include the statement on longer-run goals, post-meeting press conferences, and various statements about the principles and strategy guiding the committee's normalization of policy and the quarterly summaries of individual FOMC participants' economic projections, assessments about the appropriate path for the funds rate, and judgments about the uncertainty and balance of risk around projections. As part of the review, we are assessing the committee's current and past practices and additional forms of communication that could be helpful. For example, there might be ways to improve communication about the coordination of policy tools or the interplay between monetary policy and financial stability. Let me now turn to the review process itself. An important piece of this review has been a series of Ford 14 Fed Listens events hosted by the board and reserve banks from late February until mid-October. At these events, we heard from a broad range of interested individuals and groups, 
including businesses and labor leaders, community development professionals, and academics. At a, at a research conference at the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago in early June, we heard from prominent academic economists as well as national and community leaders. Our Fed Listens events have provided us with a valuable perspective on the labor market that could not otherwise be gleaned from aggregate statistics. These events have also offered insights into how monetary policy levers pull and push affected communities, credit availability, and small business. Now, last summer, the FOMC began to assess what we learned at these events and to receive detailed briefings from system staff on topics relevant to the review. At our July meeting, the committee agreed that our current framework for policy has served us well, and participants noted that the committee's experience with forward guidance and asset purchases has improved its understanding of how these tools operate. As a result, the committee could proceed more confidently in using these tools in the future if economic circumstances warranted. However, overall, we did judge that forward guidance and balance sheet tools, while helpful, did not eliminate the risk of returning to the effective lower bound. At our September meeting, we discussed makeup strategies in the context of a lower neutral policy rate, a reduction in conventional policy space, and a higher likelihood that a future economic downturn will involve a return to the effective lower bound. We generally agreed that our current monetary policy framework is flexible enough to allow the committee to choose the policy actions that best support our objectives in a wide range of economic circumstances. Now, our discussions will continue at future meetings. In particular, we have not yet begun to consider potential changes to communication practices, including the committee's consensus statement on longer-run goals and monetary policy strategy. The statement has helped us to articulate and clarify the Federal Reserve's approach to monetary policy, and we have agreed that any changes we might make to our strategy would likely call for some modification to this consensus statement. We will continue to report on our discussions in the minutes of our meetings and share our conclusions when we finish the review, likely around the middle of next year. So let me conclude. The economy is constantly evolving, bringing with it new challenges, and so it makes sense for us to remain open-minded as we assess current practice and consider ideas that could potentially enhance our ability to deliver on the goals that Congress has assigned to us. For this reason, my colleagues and I do not want to preempt or predict our ultimate findings. What I can say is that any refinement or more material change to our framework would be aimed solely at enhancing our ability to achieve and sustain our mandate objectives in the world that we live in today. Thank you very much for your time and attention. I trust that today's conference will provide stimulating discussion of issues that are central to our review. Thank you again.